Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT's culture podcast. I'm Grizz. And I'm Al. This week we'll be discussing political theatre. And later on we'll be talking to a woman who rowed across the Pacific in an all-women boat. And in other exciting news, we have a new Facebook page. Come and chat to us at facebook.com slash everythingelsepodcast. So Al, how are you doing? What have you been up to? I've been covering the Michelin Star Awards um, as a real like, news journalist for the first time in my whole life. I and what, was, what did that involve? It involved me getting a terrifying email from the UK news editor telling me to go and cover this grand event in the brewery in London um, and telling me to write a news story. So off I went to be confronted by dozens and dozens of chefs I mean, not, really. not that surprising at the Michelin Star Awards. No, no, you would hope <laughs> that at any decent Michelin <laughs> there, there Star Awards there might be a chef. Around. And, and indeed there were. It's a strange event because it's very corporate to begin with. And it's mm-hmm. all about Michelin tyres, which is fine if you like tyres. Mm-hmm. But then after that, they start presenting awards to chefs. And the ones who haven't, who haven't won a star before but are going to win one today are sort of kept in a, in a dark room. Um, so they know they're going to win? No, they don't know. They know that something is going to happen. God. Uh, so they're kept in, in a little dark room and then they start announcing them and each chef comes out wearing a, wearing a white jacket. And in this case, all of them were men. A damning reflection oh, of the God. industry. Yeah. Um, but then they, these sort of lucky, happy chefs come out wearing their... Wearing their white wearing jacket. Wearing what chefs wear. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it's a special white jacket that Michelin have given them oh, okay. um, in honour of, of their award. And then they, they parade like the Oscars through, <laughs> through the crowd of their peers and, and they get to the stage and there's music and red lights. And then almost all of them burst into tears. It's a beautiful thing. They care so much <laughs> about it because I think chefs' lives are extremely stressful and they work so hard and they're so passionate. And they finally got some recognition. They finally get some recognition. And so the relief, the great joy of this leads them to tears, but also possibly just the thought that from now on they're going to have to maintain their Michelin star forever and ever. And the Just adding that, to their workload. Yeah, it might, might make them cry as well. But it was, <laughs> so, many of it was, it was very beautiful. It sounds like quite a colourful news story. Did you have fun with that or did it get ripped to shreds by the UK news editor? Well, I, I had 50 minutes to write it. It's quite a different thing on the newsroom, isn't it? Yes. Well, normally I asked to write 500 words. It would take me about three or four days. and I, I, <laughs> You'd be sitting at I your desk, head in hands, <laughs> agonising over it. Yeah, Chris, I'd be so... I don't know what to do. <laughs> exactly. I'd be sort of ringing my wife and um, calling my mum and Crying. sweating over every comma. And then if anyone takes anything out, then oh, I have God a forbid. Major, major panic about it. But in this case, I wrote it in, in 50 minutes. And I'm very pleased to say that the news editor only rewrote two-thirds of it. <laughs> Otherwise slapped it on the page. Yeah. How's your week been? 
My week has been totally flattening and exhausting. It's been a brutal week of work. This in my world over at the Arts Desk is Freeze Week, which is when the two Freeze Art Fairs come to London. The art world descends on London, all the glitterati and lots of exhibitions open and galleries open. And it's very kind of glitzy and fun if you're not a journalist. So that's what I was doing this week. Did you feel that you, you fitted in with the glitterati? I wouldn't say I fitted in, no. I felt sort of like noticeably scruffy and sort of down at heel. The God, I'm there, sorry to hear that. The people there have a did lot... You, did you feel that you were lowering the tone? <laughs> Not quite. Morally, you were raising it. <laughs> Not morally, I was raising it. I had no Botox, so... Not yet. So, <laughs> got my appointment booked for next week, no. Why is Freeze a big deal? Because London is arguably the centre of the art world and Freeze Week is the centre of the year in the London art calendar, to, to use that awkward metaphor. But so, so it's an, basically, it's an important week for the art world. It's where a lot of museums from all over the world come to freeze and that's where they buy things for their collections or private collectors do the same. And it's, for lots of people, it's a way, they go to the fair and they look at what's on and they sort of take the temperature of contemporary art. You know, it's like the fashion weeks. It's where you go and see what's really at the cutting edge did, of things. Did you... Buy a few paintings yourself. <laughs> Just a few. <laughs> but no, I did not. These paintings, are, are they beyond the means of, of your average... Of um, journalists high -flying on low salaries. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. They have a special early morning opening for VVIPs, which no press allowed. And that is very much people who are sort of dropping cash. VV. VVIPs. Right. So I was just... One VIP, and you can go wow. sort of a day before the public, but but the gallery owners do not care about you. It's, if you have two Vs, and you're, you've got the dollar, Grace then... Murray Brown VIP. <laughs> anyway, so that's what that's why Freeze is so important. And, and in one sense, it's great. It's very exciting. There's lots of parties, and the art world is a pretty sort of glamorous place to be. As I said, when you're sort of churning out pages and pages of coverage on this and trying to sort of check prices and the galleries are all going mad because you've printed the price in dollars and not in pounds and this kind of thing. So this is Life all, is stressful. So this is all very stressful. So you had to go and listen to some chamber music. Is that yeah. Right? So last night, it's a complete antidote. I went to the Wigmore Hall to hear some chamber music and it was totally lovely and exactly what I needed to do. I was feeling highly stressed. You saw me before I went. I cycled extremely fast through multiple red lights. I almost missed the concert, but when I sat down in my chair and the first piece started, it was a new commission, this work by a contemporary composer, Mark Anthony Turnage, and it was this beautiful new work. It's called Quintet for Piano and Strings, Prussian Blue, and it was sort of ethereal, lots of sort of contrasting, very sort of strange but I was completely transported. I forgot all about Freeze. I forgot about my work, my desk, the huge number of pages I've been trying to produce this week. It all sort of melted away at the Wigmore Hall. How lovely. It was lovely. And it made me think, yeah. you know, I should go. I don't know as much as I should know, probably, about classical music. Can one ever know enough? That is another question. Yeah. But it did make me think, you know, I get a huge amount of enjoyment from this. I should go and do this more often. And the other thing that we did this week is we saw a play called Labour of Love. By James Graham who is a young and extremely talented and successful playwright. Spoken um, with not an ounce of envy. No, no envy at all. <laughs> um, he has two plays on in the West End at the moment, beside each other on St Martin's Lane, which must be a record. It's quite extraordinary. When you're walking up the street, you see the kind of bright lights and the signs for both of them, yeah, one next to the other. It's an, it's an amazing achievement. The two plays are Ink, which we saw last week, which is about 
the media and the beginning of the Sun newspaper. And the second one, Labour of Love, which we saw this week, which Mm -hmm. is about the Labour Party from 1990 until this election in 2017. Yeah, but sort of told backwards and then fast-forwarding again. So it does quite funny things with rewinding and time. It's clever like that, isn't it? goes backwards. It's it's a clever play. And then it goes forwards. (laughs) And ostensibly, it's a political play. It is literally a play about politics politics and politicians. Ed Miliband was sitting, the former leader of the Labour Party, was sitting in the row behind me. The place was crawling with MPs as well as theatre critics the night that I saw it. That must have been rather exciting. It's very sort of meta. I mean, there is a sort of portrait of Miliband at one point on the set when they're in that sort of era of the Labour Party, which, you know, must have been a little bit odd for him. But Al, you're not convinced that Labour of Love, this play by James Graham, is actually a political play? I'm not completely certain. It's obviously a play about politics and about politicians that we know. But is it actually a political play? How would you define political? What is a political play for you? I don't think that a play that is just about politics is automatically a political play. In the same way that Animal Farm is essentially about animals, it's obviously a political novel. I think the spark for a political play comes from a playwright feeling a sense of injustice at what he or she sees. But Labour of Love is essentially a rom-com. It's got a lot in common with kind of Shakespearean comedies like Much Ado About Nothing with these sort of... Martin Freeman plays an MP, Tamsin Gregg is his kind of constituency office agent. And they're almost like warring lovers and you kind of... It's a kind of will they, won't they... Absolutely. ...over time. So in that sense, it's kind of apolitical. No, I don't think it is apolitical. I think that it... I think you're completely right that it is a essentially a rom-com. It has the structure of a fairly conventional comedy. But I don't think that there's any writer alive who doesn't, or who has ever lived, who doesn't take some sort of political stance on something. Even if they choose not to take a political stance, even if they think they're not taking a political stance, there is an inevitable and indelible political bias in how they write. And I think that James Graham certainly does have a political bias in it. But it's not, he's not sort of shoving it down your throat. There's nothing polemic about it. No, I don't think he's screaming at the audience, which is good. <laughs> I mean, it's um, very funny. It's quite no, sort of it's light. Funny. I think he has a lightness of touch. Mm. He's an extremely skillful writer, but that doesn't mean that he's apolitical, that he's completely detached from what he's writing about. Yeah, I mean, he clearly knows in, and cares about the Labour Party, I think. Yes. Every and, three hours you could deduce that. Yeah, and I think that he clearly supports them and wishes them well. Um, and and worries... <laughs> and wishes that they were doing better, maybe. Well, exactly, and worries about their infighting and worries about um, them getting lost in internal struggles. So do you think political theatre gets a bad rep? Yes. I think that it's an ugly phrase, political theatre. I'm not certain that James Graham will even identify himself as a political... Well, because it sort of sounds like someone shouting and ranting at you, trying to change your mind about something. Yes, it's, it's a uniquely unsexy um, <laughs> phrase, political theatre, political playwright. <laughs> Having said that, the, the idea that an artist of any kind could improve the world by the beauty of their art must be the most appealing thing imaginable. It's like appeals to... like. The, the vanity of a, of a writer and artist beyond anything, the fact that you could sit at home and construct a play and then 
and spread peace as you go. Ah, you're going misty-eyed. This is, this this is, is clearly like, this is my ultimate goal in <laughs> when life. When you were writing your unpublished novel, well, exactly. This I is what to, was going through your head. I wanted to shake up the world and spread <laughs> some peace. Spread some love. Indeed. <laughs> no, that was last week. This week we're talking about political theatre. So we are shortly going to untangle this um, with James Graham, who's about to come into the studio. And also joining us is Helen Lewis, deputy editor of The New Statesman. She writes about politics and theatre, so we're going to ask her for her views on this. James and Helen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. James, why do you write plays? Oh my God, big existential <laughs> question. Um, I don't know why I started. I didn't grow up with a theatre background. I didn't go to the theatre much like most people probably when they're kids, apart from pantomime and being forced to go and watch Shakespeare plays at school. But as soon as I discovered it properly with a great teacher and a university, for me it was always going to be the most exciting medium to write in for two reasons. The, the process is just much more rewarding and challenging and fun than writing a TV drama or a film because you're building something with a team of people in real time over four or five weeks. And then I think the experience of sitting in a theatre is still really important. I still believe it's a political act to assemble in a space like that and watch a story. And if you're going to do a political stories, especially today, especially now, when things, the conversation isn't always as nuanced and complex and uh, grey as it should be, I think you need the darkness and the space and the time that a play gives you to really interrogate and understand complicated themes and also to be physically with the people performing the art and to be physically next to a community of people watching it in real time. I think that's the best We were sitting to next together in the We theater. were, yeah. Was that weird? Sorry. <laughs> it's always kind of exciting to be next I, to the playwright. I, I, I wasn't laughing at my own jokes. I, being... <laughs> I, I was laughing quite hard. Fine, yeah. Thank you. I always laugh at my own jokes when I read my articles about because they're written for someone with exactly your sense of humour, right? Yeah, if you course, leave it for a couple you, of weeks, you're like... Yeah. I mean, if, you do, if I don't find it funny, then how about 900 people a night going to... But anyway... <laughs> Do you see yourself as a political playwright? I struggle with this because I imagine I'm projecting people's articles written about me that I haven't read, but that there is a difference between politics about theatre and political theatre. But I recognise that what I like to write about is plays about politics. Could the difference be a play about politics could be like your new play, Labour of Love, which is about the Labour Party from 1990 to the present day, whereas a political play, and I'm not saying that Labour of Love isn't a political play, a political play begins when a playwright opens his bedroom curtains, looks at the world, sees injustice and wants to change it. That um, may be true. So I guess there is a branch of theatre that is has as its intention. I suppose it's about intention. What do I intend? What do you intend as a writer to affect an audience? Are you an activist? Do you want to affect change? Do you want people to leave your theatre? Are you an and activist? March? I want to affect change, but I don't. I might not be a political playwright in the strictest sense. In that I don't have an agenda. I don't that I want to project onto an audience. I don't have a lesson sure, or an opinion. That must be impossible. But it's sort of the difference between an op-ed article and a feature article, right? Which both of which are things that I write. And if you're writing an, an op-ed, you know, a comment piece, you're making a case. You're not. You're saying, you know the Grenfell disaster was caused by X and that's bad. Whereas if you're doing a piece of reporting, you might go and talk to survivors of that fire. You might go and talk to that. And actually, there will be a kind of ideology behind it, but you're not banging people over the head. And that's why I like James's work, because it's actually writing against the grain of where we are now, which is kind of very easy polarisation and goodies and baddies, and always trying to understand the idea that... Actually, I think what you're saying about getting people together is really fascinating, because to me, the the big problem with modern politics now is two kind of tribes who are so polarised. OK, but would, do we agree that however nuanced and subtle and skillful the political playwright is, or the feature writer is, that a latent political bias 
always exists. Inevitably, you as the feature writer or James as the playwright has to take a side. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm in certain terms of, of where, even where you're kind of placing the argument. I mean, I come from a feminist tradition that says that the personal is very political. So even the fact of you know what relationships are you putting in your play is the essential relationship in your play a gay one or a straight one? You know, what ethnicity are the characters? What class are the characters? Yeah, there's a sense of, of presenting a, a vision of the world and saying, if not explicitly. How nice would it be if things were a bit more like this? If these people were the people who had voices, if these were the people who were at centre stage? There's a way that you can do that in a subtle way without even being about politics, I think. The real political theatre also, it isn't necessarily corridors of power stuff, it isn't necessarily policies or politicians. It could be about gender, it could be about race, it could be set in in an apartment in Leeds and it'd be about the power in a relationship and that'd be small p political. But I, I, I entirely agree that for me, a priority, you know, especially take the Labour Party, I entirely recognise Helen's analysis of what, where politics is now. And I think the Labour Party, despite feeling like they've had a very good conference and they're feeling very strong in the polls, the disunity apparent still between these old ideologies of left and right, progressive or radical, I think, isn't a particularly healthy place at the moment, especially online. And there is no middle ground. It's all black and white. You either, you either support this or you're a traitor. That's why theatre, and that's why particularly this play, I hoped to provide a um, a fun and safe space uh, in an entertaining play whereby you had to have two characters, one rep- one played by Martin Freeman, one by Thames and Greg, who just represent, broadly speaking. And they're both actually very sympathetic characters in their own way. I mean, you said, I found myself kind of shifting allegiance. I mean, Martin Freeman and Thames and Greg are both so brilliant as well that yeah, you sort, no, of, sort of wanted lucky. to like both of them. And I have this probably very old-fashioned sentimental view about people that people are generally quite nice. <laughs> and sealing them in a room and covering 27 years of local Labour Party history felt like a good way to try and assess some of the conversations and the language that is, that, that's happening happening now structurally it's really a, ro- a romantic comedy isn't it uh yeah <laughs> do you resist that label as well no i've got no problem with that label it's it, there it's is a romantic a element rom-com i don't know whether it's cozy uh i realize i say this the c word comes up four times in it i know i thought about taking my mother and i thought i'm gonna have to warn her <laughs> and actually because of uh, ink further down the road i realized that i currently say the c word seven times on st martin's day and night so i'm, I'm not proud That's of that fact. Twitch. but it does i know and i'm sorry mom if you're listening to this but i do you know it does reflect the um uh, the passions and the anger that people are feeling at the moment. Oh, certainly in terms of a newspaper office, it reflects how people actually speak, which is a big part of kind of work out. <laughs> no, I mean, I want you to work, work at the Daily Mail, so I know whereof I speak. And I think Inc. is a really interesting example when you're talking about political theatre, because there is a play that is not about politics as its top line, it's about newspapers as its top line, but it's asking, it's confronting a theatre audience, right? It's in dialogue with the kind of people who go and see theatre, who are, let's be honest, probably the more the kind of people who are going to think the sun is terrible, it's debased British public life, why uh, do people buy by this ghastly paper and actually at some point you do have to confront the fact that quite a lot of people like it and what is it you don't understand about them? I came away from actually feeling slightly differently about the sun I mean I didn't go away and buy it the next morning I have to say but I did have a sense of like its appeal or its kind of origins. Yeah, no, I had that sense I had a sense that it was well, quite thrilling and quite exciting to but it is working and working yeah. on a tabloid newspaper is is incredibly thrilling because you are have you are wielding this enormous power like you know what you put on your front page changes the conversation it, it is about power i mean if we're going to talk about political theater really ultimately i think you'd be saying this it comes everything comes down to power doesn't it james and i had a conversation earlier this summer about what 
political theatre can do that political journalism can't. And I keep thinking about this, about the fact that it's about the psychology of power and people who wield it. And actually, that's something that's very hard to get to in journalism. Why? Why people do what they do? And by inhabiting the characters, I think you actually begin to see why people do things that are on the surface of it, completely inexplicable. That's the centre of of ink, isn't it? You don't answer why. Yeah, I mean, I, we, the concept in the play is that that's what the sun did, it killed the concept of why, and it doesn't matter anymore. Um, and actually, if you don't ask why, stories can run and run. Um, but no, I hope the play does ask why. And I think also, and I was, I've was i been thinking about your question, Helen, a lot uh, since you asked me, what, what does theatre do that maybe other mediums, including journalism, can't or is maybe better at? And I don't know this for sure, but there's something about... There's something about the, the quality of that space and that level of concentration and narrative and character that I think it really helps you to walk in the shoes of some someone else. But there's something about the narrative, there's something about watching a character and seeing them make choices in the moment and understanding those motivations and what's driving them that I think helps helps you to understand, even if you don't agree with them, it helps you understand and empathise with them. And it's an incredibly sustained engagement. If anyone who's ever looked at newspaper web traffic stats will have, st- I mean, that's really a staring into the abyss, right? Not <laughs> only in terms of what Google searches people come in on, but also in terms of how much time they spend on a page. Right. And actually, how people quickly people it's bounce off a page. The idea that someone would spend two and a half hours reading one of my articles is just like a beautiful <laughs> yeah. pipe dream. A slow reading. Yeah. Yeah. But also, I, just the thing of, of an actor performing in front of an audience is a powerful political... It's a cauldron, isn't it? Isn't that, Al, isn't that Al is a former actor, I should let you guys know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, that, there's a reason why tyrants ban theatre. That's the, their first thing they do, isn't it? They ban theatre before they ban movies. But or this is where I kind of... I mean, I think the, your cozying point is a really interesting one because we always talk about how dangerous political theatre is, but actually how much political theatre is being made at the moment that's really upsetting people. Are we now in this weird liberal space where there's almost nothing you could put on that would, would cause a riot? So I went to the Edinburgh Festival this year and I feel like that is a almost, I, I don't know whether you'd agree, James, but you're seeing the kind of front guard of, mm. of theatre and I think you're seeing people sort of testing out ideas and I feel like plays there still do have... Because there's a shallow shock value, isn't it? There's the kind of I'm going to fling a tampon into the audience kind of shock value. But in the kind of actually truly kind of shaking people to their core, it's quite a hard thing to do now. We're quite blasé about everything. I suppose there are fewer taboos. I mean, we talk about things more. There were lo- there was lots of work about transgender theatre at the Fringe this year, and I think even five years ago that might have been quite shocking to people. I think nowadays it's part of our na- kind of national conversation. But I bet that all comes from one place, right? That all comes from a particular liberal sensibility about gender issues. Actually, weirdly, you know, in the kind of sense of... We had this kind of argument about stand-up comedy. Why is stand-up comedy all so left-wing? I think there's a big question as well about why is political theatre often really tends towards the left-wing as well. Theatre in general, there there is a kind of... New theatre and theatre that we—that's not sort of West End musicals. I mean, there is a, perhaps a bias towards left wing. I think it's inevitable. In James's play, one of my favourite lines is um, when Tamsin Gregg stands up and says, "Wouldn't it be lovely to be a Tory that you know you could look out the window every morning and and go, oh great, you know it's perfect. We'll just, we'll just <laughs> keep it exactly as it is." Being left wing means that you want to change it. Therefore, a political playwright like yourself is bound to be left wing because you want to change it. Yeah, I mean, I think um, <laughs> I fully understand that any conservatives listening to this would not agree with that statement, and they would actively think that they were things they want to change. But no, I mean, I guess the definition of conservative but it, to maintain those institutions and those, those systems. I don't necessarily think that the politics you preach has to be left wing, but I think the nature of how you make the work very crudely, I guess, the difference between individual individualism in your work and collectivism in your work. If you're writing a novel, it's an, it's an entirely private individual experience, and the relationship you have with the reader is an individual experience. Theatre 
making from its very beginning uh, to its to its final sharing point with an audience is a collective communal endeavour, which I naturally think leads more to a kind of left-wing community feel. And, and also, what you're looking for is, is, is a level of humanity and tolerance and open-mindedness from anyone across a political spectrum towards your characters. That's what's required for you to engage with the work. But I'm convinced that you can still project with a level of sophistication and, and understanding a right-wing viewpoint into your play. And I, I hope in both Ink and Labour of Love, characters do do that. That doesn't mean the play is right-wing, but that those ideas exist and they're given the free and fair space. Yeah, that they I think deserve. Bertie Carvel's amazing performance as Rupert Murdoch is so sort of magnetic that yeah, he does carry... Again, that's also what the joy of theatre is, uh, even though I just said the play is about a lack of why... What actors do, and I know it's a massive cliche, but all the entire process an actor goes on in a rehearsal room is constantly asking why. Why am I doing this? And then the cliche is, what's my motivation? What's my motivation? So all Bertie Carvel's Murdoch is doing, just going, why is he behaving this way? What does he want? What are the methods he's employing to try and get what he wants? And through that act, you're naturally going to create a three-dimensional human figure that isn't just a cipher for evil or for, for certain political views. They're human beings. You're forcing yourself, the cast and the audience to be empathetic. Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, there's no, there is no work, there's no character, there's no drama. I think the other thing is it's really noticeable to me. I mean, I've watched a lot more theatre this year than I have in previous years, but there's just a lot more stuff being made that I think feels like it needs to engage. I think there is a feeling that people, that the world is very difficult to understand at the moment and actually art, whether it's novels or plays. or In the next couple of weeks, we've got St George coming out of the, the National, which is Lindsay Turner directing, and then we've got Mike Bartlett's Albion at the Almeida, which is supposed to be in a sort of Chekhov-style State of the Nation play. And there's Young Marks at the New Bridge Theatre. You know, There's a kind of series of all these things that are much more explicitly political than I can remember theatre being for probably since post-Iraq really. I agree yeah. and it's getting thankfully Touchwood for the time being it's getting a, a big audience and a popular audience as well and we know from the audiences coming to Labour of Love uh, not to turn this into an advertisement but because of uh, a quarter of the seats are £10 the types of um, younger fans you're getting means at least you're, you're reaching a wider range of voices and I think it is also a question of who is allowed to make the work and who is allowed to see the work and there's no point in pretending that if you, the access to the play is restricted to a certain, only certain stratas of society, that it has any political impact whatsoever. So those questions have to be asked too. Helen, you said that we're unshockable now, and I, I agree with that. But do you think that political plays can change anything? This is an argument that I've had with several people over the summer. I think if they can change anything, it's about opening people's horizons in the sense of just framing things which is again it comes back to something that I think journalism does as well is think about the whole concept of something like austerity right which is this idea that you have to do certain things fiscally because there are certain imperatives and that's that you know and then all these analogies are built up about you know you can't overspend on our credit card or we have to tighten our belt you know all the way that political discussion is framed there's a very famous book called um, Don't Think of an Elephant which is all about the idea that <laughs> essentially as soon as you say that someone thinks of an elephant and what happens with, with political discussion is it becomes these, these narratives Comes up. I wrote a piece earlier in the summer about which is called Deep in Macron Country, which is essentially doing that bit of journalism. You know that bit of journalism that people did with Trump voters where they went to yeah. a truck stop and they found a load of 50-something white guys who were angry about stuff and they went, are you angry? And they went, yes, I'm very angry, I'm voting <laughs> Trump. And doing that with kind of centrist liberals who go, no, I'm not angry, I, I like everything, everything is basically great. And those people don't ever get that. You don't ever get those narratives. In the um, US election, you never got the narratives of the 94% of African-American women who voted for Hillary Clinton. What were they angry about? Maybe they were quite angry, actually, too. 
And so it's all about framing. And I think that's the same thing with political theatre. It gives us frames to understand. It gives us conceptual frames to understand how things do. And that's a very slim way of changing the world, I guess. It's not the same as everybody kind of coming out of Labour of Love and immediately kind of storming Tory party HQ, right? And kind so of, that's a shame, isn't it? <laughs> and, and, you know, like taking to the barricades or whatever. But it is. it has advanced people's political understanding, which is, I think understanding is something that is, is a very politicised concept now. James, would you like us to take to the barricades? <laughs> No. Well, maybe. Oh, I don't know. But you shouldn't place that level of responsibility onto a single play. But what it does is it contributes to a wider blob that's happening and you just you just contribute your bit to it. But I also, I also believe, I can't imagine for a second that I've never watched a film or a, a, a play and not in a very micro, small way shifted in, in something. Or even just become slightly more aware of a world, a character, a part of the country an opinion that I, that I was less aware of before. So we more must shift slightly on our axis, I believe that. Well, I will be joining you at the barricade. Right, thanks. <laughs> thanks, guys, for coming in. Thank you very much. Thank you so Thank much. You. This week on the podcast, we spoke to Natalia Cohen. Al, who is she and why did you want to interview her? She's the friendliest person that has ever stepped into the FT offices by a long way. By an incredible distance. <laughs> I mean, she hugged everybody she met. She, I mean, I tried to shake her hand and she launched She wasn't having hard. any of it. No, she no. wasn't having it. She hugged you. She hugged <laughs> other. you. She hugged even you. But on top of being the friendliest person ever to have stepped into these offices, she rode across the Pacific. I mean, that's an amazing thing to do. What? Why? I'll read you something from her website. Her mission is to empower others to enjoy their life journey reach their full potential and understand that we are exactly where we are supposed to be right now. That's beautiful, isn't it? Is that it? how you feel right That's now, well, early in the morning you, in the studio? Well, actually, I was going <laughs> to ask you that. Um, but um, no, I don't. I don't feel I should be here right now. I, I always think I should be in Hollywood or somewhere like that. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Do you feel that this is exactly where you should be right now? I'd quite like to be in bed. Yeah, I mean, broadly, you've I don't think such, I should... Be, I you have th- had such an exhausting so week tired. with your freeze. No, I don't think I should be in Hollywood. I do not have delusions of grandeur. OK, so you agree with Natalia Cohen that, you know, that this, where we are right now, is exactly where we're supposed to be. I don't know if I agree with her philosophically. I think she's probably a bit more zen and sort of centred. I mean, I would like to be. Yeah, I would can like we agree to think that, that. That, isn't, that isn't ideal, isn't it? She's got it. Can we also agree that she's, she's certainly much happier than me? <laughs> I think that I think listeners that will be fairly clear when you come to hear the interview. <laughs> Has meeting Natalia made you want to take up rowing or any other sport adventurous or not? No, no in no possible way could I be induced to Why row. Am I not surprised. No, it's like it's a third of the way around the whole world. I think it's amazing that anyone should do this and I'm very glad that people do do this and I'm very very glad it's not me. You came here by boat. I did. I've, I've never got the boat before, so I thought I'd do a 10-minute little jaunt down the river and landed in Bankside, and it was amazing. I just thought, how fitting to be on the river coming here to chat to you. Just like Doris, the journey took a little bit longer than planned. Did you feel like you were back on the Pacific? <laughs> Any opportunity to be back on water, I love, actually, but not quite like the Pacific. Let's just recap what you did. You rode for 257 days 
on a rowboat with two stopovers in Hawaii and Samoa from San Francisco to Cairns in Australia. You covered about 9,000 nautical miles. It took nine months, three more than you anticipated. Your boat was eight metres long and you had only three other women with you at any one time. That sounds like um, madness. (laughs) That's right. It was quite a ridiculous project, but it ended up being one of the most incredible experiences of my life so far. It was actually a beautifully simple life out there. All we had to do was row and rest. So we rode in two-hour shifts, two hours on, two hours off, 24 hours a day. 12 hours every day. That's right, yes. 257 days of 12 hours a day. (laughs) The longest time that we were out at sea at one point was 97 days. We went across the equator and through the area known as the doldrums and that was challenging, very frustrating. There were days where we'd actually make negative miles or essentially be going backwards because of the counter currents and the lack of wind. And a lot of ocean rowing is supposed to be wind and current assisted. But because it was an El Nino year, we unfortunately didn't have any of that help. And that's part of the reason why it ended up taking us three months longer. So, What is an El Nino year? El Nino is a, is a phenomena that happens ever so often and it affects the air temperatures and then the currents and the the climate, essentially. We actually didn't really know what we were going to get. There was a lot of wind that we were expecting that we just didn't have. So having no wind and then having this counter current meant that we were fighting to move Doris, our boat was called Doris, who weighed one ton in a completely different direction. Why did you do this extraordinary thing? <sighs> I think it was right place, right time. My background is in the the travel industry and I do a lot of contractual work. I just finished a contract managing a safari lodge in Tanzania and I was back in Cape Town where I'd been based and I actually saw an advert for this expedition on a website. And my initial thoughts were, wow, you know, what a ridiculous thing to do. Why why would anybody want to do that? Particularly someone who's never rode before. Yeah, exactly. I didn't even think about that. And I came across lots of friends and the question that they always ask me is what are you going to do next so almost as a joke I said to them I'm going to row across the Pacific and after saying it enough times I thought "Mm, what's actually to stop me applying for this apart from the fact that I've never rowed before so I went to the gym I sat on a rowing machine for about an hour an hour and a half and I loved it you spent one hour on a rowing machine and thought you're pretty good at that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I thought I was good, but I thought I quite liked the motion. This is something that I could do. Okay. Then while you're coping with the mental side of it, you're also having to cope with the prospect of dying on a regular basis, are you not? There's obviously an element of risk involved in this type of expedition, but we were as prepared as you could possibly be. So we worked with experts in every field. We did lots of sea survival skills, capsize drills, 24-hour and 48-hour practice rows, learned all about the navigation, how to be self-sufficient out there on the ocean. Doris was solar panels, and those solar panels charged our lithium batteries that ran all of our navigation equipment. We had state-of-the-art navigation equipment. We had onshore support. We got the tail end of a tropical storm, and when it was too rough to row, then we would go inside the cabins. We wouldn't put ourselves in danger, and we wouldn't row, and we would essentially ride out the storm. And you were confident that Doris would always survive that? I had amazing trust and confidence in Doris, actually. During the time on the ocean, I, she felt really strong. I had 100% faith in her. But she's still a small boat. 
She is. She's a tiny boat, but we were almost like this cork bobbing up and down on the ocean, essentially. So because we were so small, we would ride the waves. So we didn't get caught between waves. We would literally ride up them and then surf down them. So the main challenge was making sure that we kept her face on to the waves because when we were side on or beam on, that's when we were at our most vulnerable of capsizing. That must take a sort of mental toll. It might be very easy just to flip out. Yeah, I think the journey was 90% mental. We worked with uh, an amazing sports psychologist, Keith Goddard, and we went through every conceivable what-if scenario. We all had our own individual coping strategies. We worked through what we called hot buttons, so knowing what brings out the worst in each of us and having that understanding, learning not to take it too personally out there. And Did you know that you liked each other already? We were very different. Honestly, you could never find six more different women if you try. So just to explain that, there was four of us on the boat at any one time. Three of us rode the full nine-month journey and then the other three team members rotated the full seat on the boat. What we found actually was that it was these differences and this diversity within our team that actually turned out to be our greatest strength. It was the fact that we had different things to talk about and we brought different strengths to the boat that made it work as well as it did. So there weren't times in the doldrums when you suddenly thought, well... I might just have to throw up. <laughs> we're only human, obviously, as well. So there were, you know, with sleep deprivation and, and being in those cramped conditions. And it was challenging. But underlying everything was this amazing trust and respect that we had for one another. And I think that was the most powerful thing. It definitely grew out there, but we had it beforehand as well. And I think it was the fact that we did support and encourage one another that really helped us to be successful. You know, there were moments and the biggest argument that happened on the boat was between myself and Laura and it was over a packet of instant noodles. So <laughs> that she puts ate it your into noodles. No, it's it's quite a long story, but all I can say is I was right. <laughs> okay, well no, I couldn't that. What was your lowest moment? There's one moment that always stands out in my mind and it was a nighttime shift and I suffered quite badly with salt sores and pressure wounds and and what I found was that if I was distracted then the pain would just be desensitized somehow and I could just carry on rowing but this just particular distracted in, in like by my teammates I would okay. say to them give me a quiz or tell me a story but this one nighttime shift the distraction just wasn't working and the pains weren't really going away and It was dark, really dark, and I found myself saying, I can't do this, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. And I think testament to the work that we did beforehand, and we worked with these things called PES, or Performance Enhancing Strategies, which could be anything like music or visualisation or mantras, and this inner voice came from within and just went, you can do it. And that almost became this new mantra of, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. And I just started repeating that. And then breaking things down into manageable size chunks. So stroke by stroke and just knowing that if I can get through this two hour shift, then I can rest and then I'll have another two hour shift. And I just broke everything down. So if you thought of it in terms of 9,000 nautical miles. Then Too much, mind, definitely mind not. Even if I thought of it from San Francisco to Cairns, it was so overwhelming. So it was stroke by stroke, it was shift by shift, it was leg by leg. And by doing it that way, it made everything seem a lot more possible. And each leg almost became like a separate adventure as well because of the change in team dynamic. It was and you encountered all sorts of things. We did. Like a pod of whales in the middle of the night, is that right? We were swapping over shifts and... 
It was one of those unusually quiet nights. We suddenly heard this sound, so we shushed everyone up, and we suddenly heard this... And because it was so dark, we couldn't see them, but we could hear this pod of whales. And it was such a magical, magical experience. I would say that it was almost like this nine-month meditation. We were immersed in nature and surrounded by this 360-degree horizon and ever-changing ocean and skies. And to be in the moment was a lot easier out there. And ultimately, when you're in the moment, that's when you're protected from everything, particularly the little gremlins that shout and your little inner dialogue that goes on in your mind and it was so easy to be in the moment because of the utter beauty that we had a monotonous beauty as well monotonous definitely in respect to what we were doing but when you look really closely you can see the subtle changes and the differences and when you look really closely there are 50 shades of blue out there you know and the light would always sparkle on the water in a different way and those sunsets and sunrises were mind-blowing and you had to just keep reminding yourself that things were constantly changing and moving around you and you made friends i believe you made a friend called fernando fernando we did fernando was a Galapagos shark that followed us for two weeks in leg two. He was amazing. And leg three, we had Eduardo. Um, All the wildlife got given male uh, names. We don't know why they followed us. Maybe they wanted to eat you. Maybe wishful thinking, possibly, that one of us would fall out. So when we swam, we would always have one person doing shark watch. And we would only obviously swim if we hadn't seen sharks in the water for a long period of time. How did you cope with the boredom? By celebrating the really small successes along the way and the little things, talking to one another and sharing our life stories by playing word games. We had iPods, so we listened to music. By staring out into that ocean, for some like me, it became a meditation and my thoughts just stopped or others would just think about what you know what was going to happen when they got back to land or they would just run through little so- stories in Often their you'd be, mind. you'd be rowing in silence? Or you'd... We normally decided what type of shift we wanted as a pair. So we were always very mindful of where each other was mentally because we, we all went on our own journeys essentially. So before a two-hour rowing shift, we'd say, okay, how are you doing? You know, do you want to chat for two hours? Do you want to have a reflective shift and listen to music? Where are you at at the moment? And because we rotated pairs every five to six days, Days, that also gave a different dynamic. So rowing with a different person, each pair was a really different experience. And each of the wonderful girls that did the journey with me was so different and unique in their own ways. I think the change in team dynamic each leg really helped. I think if four of us had done the full journey from start to finish, it might have been a different story. Blood blood. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Definitely a lot more boring, that's for sure. <laughs> You've talked about the key to your happiness being that you chose to remain connected. What does that mean? I think for me, life is all about connections and I distill them down into three main connections. One is human connection. For me out there on that ocean, it was about really developing that relationship within the team. There's the connection that you have to the environment and to nature, which I think is so pivotal. I felt this all-encompassing connection out there. That you were part of it. Yeah, 
that I was part of everything, which I've never experienced before. I've heard people talk about it. I've never experienced it. But I almost felt like we became part of the ocean. And the ocean is incredible. It mirrors life so perfectly. But I think the third connection is that connection with yourself, so that inner connection. And it's more just having an understanding and an awareness of what's going on in that mind and what the thoughts are. And you know, What did you discover about yourself? They're quite good at handling sleep deprivation. I was really worried about that because I love my sleep. Like, give me eight hours. So when you were woken up after 90 minutes, would you be... You think, oh God, I've got to, I was I've got okay. to go and row again. I was I've got another nine thousand <laughs> miles to row. I told you I didn't look at it like okay. that because it was overwhelming. So it was like I've got another two-hour shift. You know what? In two hundred and fifty-seven days, not one of us missed a rowing shift. She didn't get a cold or something and think. Even if we I'm had, we would have carried on rowing. So Lizanne and Laura both struggled really badly with seasickness, and they would literally lean over the side of the boat, vomit, and just carry on rowing. Apart from being eaten by a shark and and drowning and dying of exhaustion and all I'm the other sensing that all, you really wouldn't want to do this journey, Al. Things. Is that right? No, all the things <laughs> I'd be frightened of. One of them would be running out of water. Did this not frighten you at all? Running out of water. Yeah, and uh, I don't mean ocean. You had no, endless amounts had of lots that. Of ocean. No, again, preparation is key. We had a desalinator that drew seawater. It could make 30 litres of water an hour. But if something had have happened to that, we had a plan B, which was a hand pump, which we actually ended up having to use in leg three because of lack of battery power. And then we also had a plan C, which was our ballast for the boat. So the boat was weighted with bottles of water, which was our plan C. So, I, How much water were you drinking every day? I didn't drink nearly enough as I should have done, actually. Um the toilet system was very simple it was bucket and chuck it so I you could always see what was happening and I was fairly dehydrated most of the time so definitely not nearly enough but we would drink constantly so every two hours we were rowing we would drink and then obviously in our two-hour rest shift we were eating and that was made with water and did you have a few beers on the boat as well for when you were chilling out <laughs> <laughs> I wish it had been that kind of journey. We had uh, Captain Morgan Spice Gold rum, which I love. We had that for crossing the equator. So when you cross the equator, you have to toast Neptune. We knew that. We'd researched that. And then with Christmas, because it took us longer than expected, we knew we were going to be out there at Christmas. So we got Meg, who rode the last leg of the journey, to bring some extra supplies. So I made sure there was a little bottle of Baileys that got sneaked in, and we had hot chocolate and Baileys, which was amazing. Sounds like a total party. Yeah, we did full moon parties and dancing yeah, out there. Yeah, I gather you're a great amazing. dancer. I love dancing. Do you think your dancing improved on the boat? <laughs> Probably, because I've never been on quite an unstable dance floor like that before, but it was exhausting because one of the misconceptions is that we would be really strong and fit after this row, but we had no impact for nine months. So we didn't walk for nine months, so we atrophied out there. We lost muscle, particularly leg muscle and calf muscles even within the first three weeks arms must have been strong arms were were okay because they were doing a lot of movement but it's not like strength training getting back to land we had to take it really slowly just from walking we all got shin splints the adjustment back to land must have been very strange in other ways as well emotionally must have been strange It was. It was interesting. It was a a bit of a whirlwind. We arrived back. We had a lot of media that we had to deal with. We then all separated and spent five days with our respective families that were there. 
I found when I came back to the UK, I didn't really want to speak to anyone. I didn't want to talk about the experience that much. I, I suppose I just wanted to maybe process it. Have you missed it? Have you wanted to be back on the ocean with the girls? I have. I really, really miss the ocean more than you would imagine. What I find now quite amazing is when I take a flight anywhere and I fly over the ocean, I I look at the ocean in, in such a different way. I have this incredible knowing and understanding of the ocean that you could just row it couldn't you yeah you, you oh no 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 flying is much quicker like rowing yeah. has to be the slowest way to travel ever <laughs> that's it for this week james graham's play labor of love is at the noel coward theater in london until the 2nd of december and his other play ink is next door at the duke of york's theater until the 6th of january Next week, we'll be debating whether you can buy good taste. And Grizz will chat to the Indian novelist Amit Chowdhury. Tell us what you think of political theatre or rowing at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash everythingelsepodcast, or email us at everythingelseft.com, and we will read out the best and funniest comments on the air. Please leave us a review or rating on iTunes. It helps other people discover the podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen online at ft.com slash everything else. Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Grizz and Al. And our music is composed and produced by Fatim. <laughs> <laughs>